Okay, it's good to see you guys. Um, we're we're continuing our study of the life of Jesus Christ, or the the Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So as we're studying through the Book of Genesis right now, that's where we are in the Old Testament. Uh, what I'm my goal and my aim is to help you to be able to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, for some of you who are new, you may say, wait a minute, Jesus is not going to come around through the New Testament. How in the world can we see Him in the Old Testament? But as we've said before in the past, and I'm going to do a real brief summary today because we've got a lot of text to cover today. But basically, the whole Word of God from Genesis to Revelation points us to Christ. And to what He has done for us, to what He has done to glorify His Father, what He has done to bring uh, joy and peace and love back into a world that's full of hate and love and, and, and strife. And so as you read in the book of Genesis and you read all the way to the book of Revelation, everything in the Bible should point us to Christ. The Bible is not about you. All right? And I know that a lot of you in this room are going to struggle with that because I still struggle with it today when I read the Bible. All right? It's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus, our Lord and our Creator and our God. And when we learn to take the focus off of us and place it on God where it belongs, then our lives find the harmony and the peace and the balance that they need. The more I make it about me, the more confusing my life gets. When you were a child, when you were a baby, you thought it was all about you. Me, 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 and mine. Mine is one of the first words a child learns. Mine. No, mama, and mine are probably three of the first three words that kids learn. And what you'll find is, as you walk in this life, as you grow uh, and and mature as an adult, you're going to find out that there's going to be this constant desire for to make things about you. When you open the Scriptures, the Scriptures convict you of that and show you where you're wrong. It's not about you, it's about Him. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the, the proper uh, dissension is from God to neighbor to self. And we live in a world that flips that on its head and says it's all about me, and it's all about those around me that can do something for me. And then I'll leave a little time for God as long as He can do something for me. You see? And so what we need to do is we need to take the Scriptures and use them for what they're for to point us to Christ. And when you read through the whole Old Testament, there's all kind of uh, ways that we can see Christ in the Old Testament. Um, for some of you that are new, if you want to ask one of the other people that's here that's got one of our handouts, you can get a copy of that and look for yourself. Today we're going to go to the book of Genesis. And what I want you to do is as we read the story, as we're going through the life of Abraham, as we're reading through his story, we want to see if there's any ways that we can see where there are echoes or, or, or mentions of or... Uh, uh, Types and shadows of Jesus in what we read. So we're going to start in Genesis 18 today. Um, Jesus, uh, uh, Abraham and his Abraham and his wife Sarah are going to be met by three men in the um, on the plains of Mamre uh, or the Oaks of Mamre, and we're going to read that together now. So let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you are truly good, and you are just, and you are kind, and you are merciful, and you are 
Our God who loved us very much, you loved us enough to send your Son so that we could know you, so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could be forgiven for our sins, and so that we could have eternal life. And so, Father, we come to your Word today seeking you, seeking your Son and Holy Spirit. We so need you to help us to do that. Open our eyes today, if you will, dear Lord. And help us to see you and receive you and to believe you and trust you. Help us to focus on the fact that these passages point us to our God and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in Genesis chapter 18, we're going to read the first paragraph. um, And we're going to try to get through 18 and 19 today. It's going to be almost impossible. I always put way more on this piece of paper than I can ever get through. Um, because we do tend to chase rabbits at times. But I'm going to try to get us through 18 and 19 today. And one of the things that... All of it points us to Christ, but there's an overlying theme in these two chapters that we're going to read today. And we're going to see that God is both merciful and God is also just. And we, we as human beings have a hard time grasping that. Because God is both merciful, He is kind, He is patient, He is good, He is gracious... But He's also a just God. And I guarantee you, you have probably had somebody, I hope not, but you may have had somebody even in this pulpit teaching you that God was a different God in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament. That there's two different gods. There's the God of the law, and there's the God that zaps people with fire and brimstone, and then Jesus comes along, and He's kind, and He's sweet, and He's loving and forgiving. Well, the reality is that the God in the Old Testament is kind, loving, and forgiving. He's kind, He's just, He's gracious, He's merciful, He's patient. But He's also a just God who enforces His eternal truth that the wages of sin is death. He enforces that. And He enforces it in the Old Testament and He also enforces it in the New Testament. So when we think about God, we need to understand that He is both gracious and He is just. And both of those things, His grace... His mercy, His forgiveness, and His wrath and His justice are both expressions of who He is. And if you find yourself finding a conflict in His justice and His mercy, the conflict is not with God because there is no conflict in God. The problem is with you and your understanding of Him. His justice and His mercy are both expressions of who He is. And He will not sacrifice one for the other. When Jesus hung on the cross, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God. And His Father did not hold back any of His wrath on His Son. Why? Because He had taken our sins upon Him and He was paying the eternal price for the sins that we had committed. And there is no way that the Father could hold back His wrath and His justice. But even in that wrath and that justice, He's expressing mercy at me. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so even as He is expressing His wrath on that cross by pouring His His holy justice out on His only begotten Son... Not only is he showing that he's a wrathful and and a just God, but he's also a merciful God. Because his son, as he hung on that cross, what did he say? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
You see? And so we need to make sure that we understand that both of these, His justice and His mercy and His wrath, his, his grace and His wrath, His mercy and His justice, they're all expressions of who we are, and there is no conflict in God. So the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Yes. Amen? All right, so let's look at this passage together. Um, uh, Genesis 18. Now, the Lord, y'all notice that's all capital letters, right? Is it, in most of your Bibles, it should be all capital letters. Anytime you come across that word L-O-R-D and it's all in capital letters, that is talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping creator of the world. All right? It's talking about God. So the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. What's a tent for, guys? It's a place you hang out at. It's a place you sleep at night and dwell in. Right? A tent. The, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14 said, And the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. The, the Lord became flesh and tented with us. He, he remained with us. He stayed with us. So that tent would have been made out of animal skin, right? A tent is a safe place that I can go and be safe from the elements, right? Unless I put my finger on it, the dew will come through then if I do that. But as long as I lay in there and don't touch the sides of the tent... It keeps me from getting wet. It keeps the wind off of me, etc. So it's a place of protection. So when we see that tent, we can think about the protective nature of Jesus. We can think about the sacrifice of the animal that it took to provide that tent, right? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they were naked? What did God do? He sacrificed an animal and He clothed them. Alright, so Abraham is by his tent door in the heat of the day when he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, there were how many? Three men standing opposite to him. And when he saw them, he uh, ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, um, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought to you and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring you a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself and that you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do, as you have said. All right, so we have three here. Three automatically should make us be thinking Trinity, right? And so this could be a theophany of the entire Trinity. It could be the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We do know that He addresses one of these men as Lord, L-O-R-D. Now, in, in, notice in verse 3 when He addresses Him as Lord, it's capital L, little O-R-D, right? He is recognizing Him as one over Him, Adonai. Like he, he, he. And so... Um, can I see Jesus in those passages? Well, I want you to look a little closer at verse 4. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring you bread. All right. How does that remind me of Jesus? Now, this is anachronistic. I'm reading back from the New Testament into the Old Testament something that you and I know have taken place. Abraham is not aware that this is going to take place yet. But what do you think of when you think of feet getting washed and bread being given? Good. The night that he was betrayed, he went into the upper room with his disciples and enjoyed a Passover meal, right? Okay, good. Let's look at that. Turn with me really quickly, and let's look at John chapter 13. Um, keep, keep your marker there because we're coming right back to Genesis in a minute. And again, I'm going to read really fast tonight because I've got a lot of text I want to try to cover with you guys. What I'm trying to get you to do is to see that the entirety, the whole narrative of the Scripture forward and backwards all points us to Christ, and it's all surrounded in His theme. So John, 
the book of John, and we're going to look at John chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Notice it said He loved His own who were in the world. Alright? And, and we need to understand that they're celebrating the feast of the Passover. Why are they celebrating the feast of the Passover? Anybody know? Why are they celebrating the feast of Passover? Good, because 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 Moses wrote to them and told them a story about when they were saved, the children of Israel were saved out of Egypt, and the Passover lamb was sacrificed. The angel passed over the homes, and anyone who had the blood over the door was saved. Right? Remember? And then in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, God tells the children of Israel that every year on this certain Nisan 14, you're going to celebrate this. You're going to celebrate this supper together. You're going to sit down with your kids. You're going to clean all the leaven out of your house. You're going to have this meal, and you're going to, and your fathers are going to tell the children about what God has done for His people. Jesus is Jewish, and so are all of His disciples, and so they are celebrating. They are following the commands of Moses, right? They are they are honoring. A, something that God told them to do. And they're having this Passover, but the whole time, Paul reminds us later on that Jesus is actually the real Passover lamb. Like, He's the real lamb. The lamb that happened back in Exodus was just pointing us to what Jesus was one day going to do. And so here they are having this feast, and it said, During supper the devil had already put into the heart of Judas scared the son of Simon to betray him. So Judas is there with them. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. All right. He poured water into the basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came... Uh, to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered said, What I do, do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon said to him, Then, Lord, don't only wash my feet, but wash my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason. He said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments, reclined at the table again. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. Now you see, you call me teacher and Lord. See that word Lord there? It's capital L-O-R-D. Right there addressing him in the same way. And it says, uh, he says, for I gave you an example that you should do also as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you. I know that one of you have chosen, one I have chosen, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scriptures may fulfill that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus quotes the book of Psalms, and it's saying, there's somebody in this room that's going to betray me. I, not all of you are my chosen ones. Right? One of you is going to betray me. And what did he do? And he said, hey, way back in Psalms, David knew that when he wrote that song, that he was talking about the fact, David was talking about the fact that there were people in his court that were 
crooked and doing him dirty, but it all points to the fact that David's grandson, Jesus, was going to come along and one of his his own were going to do, do him dirty, was going to sell him out. So, But what did Jesus do? He pointed them to the Scriptures. You see how He did that? And then it says, um, From now on, I am telling you that before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. Truly I say to you, He who receives whoever I send receives Me, and He who receives Me receives Him who sent Me. So Jesus, uh, who is God in the flesh, literally uh, derobes, puts a towel around His waist, and squats down and starts washing His disciples' feet. It's one of the. It's, it's a, a job of a base servant, um, and the the Jewish people. Um, I, I was reading earlier this week <clears throat> where the Jewish people would not even let Jewish slaves do that. They would get a Canaanite slave to do it. Like it was not even. It was the dirtiest of all jobs for somebody to come in and you take their shoes off and wash their feet. But what is Jesus doing? Well, in the book of Philippians, it reminds us that Jesus, who was God, and had the glory of God clothed himself in humanity and humbled himself and came to be among us so that he could express his love to us. And so now that we go all the way back, let's go back to Genesis now, and we see Abraham, and what we're realizing is this. Abraham had saving faith. He believed in God and God accounted it to him as righteous. Remember we learned about that a couple weeks ago. Well, the reality is is that if you truly have saving faith, then you have a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. Grace is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. And if you truly believe, if you truly have that faith in you, that faith is going to come out in your words, in your actions, your thoughts, and your deeds. And because Abraham was a true child of God, because Abraham had true faith, what is he doing? He's expressing the same characteristics of his Lord and Savior. His willingness to humble himself and take care of foreigners and strangers. Right? to make others more important than himself. Okay? Good. All right, now, let's see. Um, Let's look at verses 9 through 15. We've read all the way... Oh, well, we haven't got that far, have we? No, we stopped. All right. So, verse 6. So Abraham hurried to the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly prepare me three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. I love bread cakes. All right? I I call them biscuits. They called them bread cakes back then. I call them biscuits. And they're very good bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to his servant, and he hurried to prepare it. Now, what? How, how do you prepare a calf? You sacrifice it, all right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Remember, every time that you eat a hamburger, a cow somewhere has sacrificed his life so that you can eat. There is always this constant uh, message that through death comes life. Right? Even in our everyday life. And some of you in here, I may have one of you vegan folks in here. I feel sorry for you if you can't enjoy bacon and hamburger. But it's okay. You, you know, I'm not going to hold that against you. But the reality is, you have to kill a tomato to pluck it off of a tree. Alright? It's alive. It's got, it's got life from the source, from the roots. And when you pluck a plant out of the ground, you've killed it. Alright? So you kill a salad just as much as you kill you know, uh, beef or whatever. So... But the point is, is that in death, God provides life through death. Something has to die so that we can live. And uh, I got in, we're not going to go down this road today, but I got into a huge theological debate with half of the world about animals not going to heaven, right? 
that there is no such thing as a rainbow bitch and your dog is not going to be in heaven with you. And we got in, I had a great huge debate with like half of the world on social media because they got mad at me for saying that. But the reality is if Fluffy goes to heaven, that means that every chicken that you've ever eaten and every egg that a chicken ever laid that you ate, them little chicks are going to be, all of them are going to be in heaven too. Jesus didn't die to save Fluffy. He died to save those in his image, right? He, he poured out his blood to purchase a people for himself. Now, are there going to be animals in heaven? Yes, there will be animals in heaven. Plenty of them. I would like to think that I'm going to have a pet in heaven, like a pet dog in heaven, that will be the summation and the best of all the qualities of all the dogs that I ever had. Ones that won't wet the floor and vomit in my bed. And I hope that I have a cat that doesn't rip my blinds up. You know, like like I hope that my pets in heaven. There's going to be plenty of animals there, right? But the point being is, there's not animals in heaven. Now that's just down a little side path there, but. Maybe you might need to know that, right? There's no such thing as a rainbow bridge. All right. Jesus didn't die to save the animals. He died to save us. He died to save those created in his image. All right. I hate to bust your bubble if that's what you've been hoping in. But think about that. If all animals go to heaven, then that means that every hamburger that you've ever ate, that cow's going to be there. He's going to have to, he's going to, have to make it too. So, unless, of course, he didn't repent before he died, I guess. Right? Oh. Oh, animals can't repent, can they? Okay, all right, fair enough. Let's get back to the text. <clears throat> all right. Um, look at verses 9 to 15. Eight, uh, in verse 8, he took the curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then he said to them, uh, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself and said, After I become old, shall I have the pleasure of my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abram, Why does Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, and at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son." Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. All right? So what happens? Sarah's in the tent listening to the conversation between Abraham and the three. And what do they say? Next year, the Lord says, I'm going to come back next year at this time, and next year at this time, your wife's going to have a baby boy in her arms. And what does Sarah do? She laughed. Now, why did she laugh? Because she's old. Good. She, she is barren, Right? And we've talked about this in the past. There's this theme all the way through the scriptures that in human, Adam is always barren. No matter what Adam tries to do, it always falls apart. He's not capable of doing good because he is in a fallen nature. And these women uh, who are barren, they have these barren wombs, right? They can't have babies. They are physically unable to birth a child. Or, well, not to conceive and carry a child. Physically. So here's this 80 or 80-year-old year old woman. She hears these guys outside saying, next year you're going to have a baby. And what does she do? She laughs. Why? Because she's just like me and you. And one of the things about God's Word is, is that God's Word is always true. And sometimes God tells us things that don't make sense. And sometimes our human reasoning can't grasp the depth and the uh, wonder and the wisdom of God and His Word. And so we often, just like Sarah, instead of focusing on what God promised, because remember, back in Genesis 15, 16, God had already promised Abraham, 
or he promised Abram that he was going to have a son. And what did Abraham do? Him and his wife got together and got uh, Hagar and they made a baby together, but that wasn't the promised son and God told him that. And so what's happened here? Sarah has already forgotten that God has promised Abram that he's going to have a son. And when God makes a promise, He always keeps it. Right? The problem with God's promises are our abilities to grasp and believe them. And there are always reactions from us when we hear God's promises. What is Sarah's action here? She laughs. Right? How do we react when we hear God's Word? What are some of the ways that we express unbelief? Right? We scoff. We take it with a grain of salt. We hear it and don't act on it. What are some ways in your life that you have heard God's promises? What were your reactions when you heard God's promise? And the truth of the matter is, when we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, it is unbelief. God tells me that I should pray without ceasing and that He is a God who answers prayers. And yet I constantly find myself battling with the desire and the will to pray. Why? Well, if God already knows what I need, what's the point of me asking? He's going to give me whatever He wants me to have anyhow, so what's the point of me asking? That's kind of my way of laughing at God's promise, isn't it? Right? Yep. That's kind of my way of laughing at God and His promise. God said that you have been forgiven for how many of your sins? All. All of them. And what do we do? We constantly bring up but, 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 but. And so we need to remember that our natural reaction to God's Word is unbelief. Our, our unbelief. And what did Jesus say about that? Now, well, I want to remind you of a passage in Luke. If you, if you want to turn there, you can look at it really quick. Uh, Luke 18, uh, verses 15 through 17. Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. And this is what he says. They were bringing babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began to rebuke them. But Jesus called for them and said, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, this child, like a child, will not enter at all. So, we're supposed to have childlike faith, right? Now, childlike faith does not mean that we believe everything. Children are gullible, are they not? You can tell them a lot of things, right? How many of you got your ever got your nose stolen from your uncle, right? Uh, yeah. right? We're gullible. <laughs> like we, we fall for things when we're kids. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? But if my faith is in that which is true, then my faith is real faith. And our problem as human beings is that, it, is that our father is Adam. And every one of us in this room, I would be willing to bet you, have had a father here on earth that has let us down in ways. Like we put our faith in them and they dropped us on our head. Well, I got news for you. You'll wake up one day and you'll realize that you are, your, you are a chip off the old block. And you'll turn around and you'll look at all the mistakes that your parents made towards you and you'll find out that you've been doing the exact same thing. Yes. You see? And so the truth of the matter is the reasons we have a hard time putting our trust in our earthly father is because he's our earthly father. And Adam fails. 
But when we, as God's children, put our faith in God, when we have childlike faith that God always keeps His promises, right? Then we can uh, receive those promises and we see those promises taking place in our lives. Think about the wonderment of a kid. You ever seen a kid? They're just looking at everything. They're asking all kinds of questions. Why, why, why? And what happens? We, As we get older, this world kind of beats us down and we lose that wonder. We lose that awe at the world around us. We've made up our minds that this is the way life is and this is the way it's going to be and I'm just going to hold my nose down until they put me in the grave and just accept it. But kids don't accept that, do they? No. Right? You think about as a teenager, your people telling you what you could and couldn't do. Yeah, I'm going to do what I want to do, and and you would try things that were impossible. But the more you fail, the more you stop believing in yourself. And the truth of the matter is, most of that stuff was in rebellion. Anyhow, you didn't need to be doing it. But when we put our trust in God in childlike faith, and we believe Him, and we receive Him, and we walk in those truths and those promises, then we know Him as a Father who always does what He says. And the more we grow in those promises, the more we understand how true He is in those promises, the more we trust Him. Our faith grows as we go along. So the child of the world, as they age, they lose hope. The child of God, as He matures, gains hope. I know my neighbor, she's 82. Her husband just died last year, and she was just diagnosed with uh, dementia. Now, she's at the point now where she knows she's got it, but it hadn't affected her enough to where she can't talk about it. And it saddens her to know that she's losing her memory and her mind and her ability to get along in life. And we were talking about it the other day, and I was like, you know, I said, Pat, of all of my family that I've lost as they've aged, one of the things I've learned is, is that it's almost like a kindness from God that He starts allowing our body to just give up. Because all of the people that we love, all of the people that we grew up with, all the people that we know are already gone. And the world around us, we can't relate to it anymore. The technology and the culture has passed us by. And here we are left on our porches sitting and, and you know, to, to, waiting to die. But for the child of God, this life is only a, a blink of an eye. And I have eternity to look forward to. All of those hurts and those pains and those sorrows and all of those people that I miss and all of my misgivings and all of my doubts are all going to be wiped away when I draw that final breath because that final breath here on this earth is going to be when my faith becomes sight. And it's a hope that we have as children of God. And it takes a childlike faith to believe that because we live in a world that constantly wants to beat that out of us. But Sarah... Instead of focusing on God's promises, was focusing on her physical abilities. She was focusing on the circumstance that here I am 80 years old. I ain't had any kids yet. What's to make me think I'm going to have one now? She's focusing on the barrenness of her womb instead of focusing on the fruitfulness of God's promises. If any of you in this room have any doubts or struggles about your salvation, there's only one or two reasons. Number one, you're not saved and you don't know it. And you're still struggling with that. Or number two, your salvation is being based on something that you have done in the past, something you're doing today, or something you're going to do tomorrow. See, your salvation is based on God's promise to you, and that never fails. 
If you have doubts about your salvation, it's because you're trusting in yourself to save you instead of trusting in God. When God makes a promise to you, He keeps it, and He'll never break it. But what was Sarah doing? She was focusing on the barrenness of her womb instead of focusing on the fruitfulness of God's promises. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I struggle with this every day. I remember praying one time, like the proverb said, uh, Oh God, uh, don't let me be poor so that I have to go out and steal to eat. And don't make me rich where I forget your goodness. And yet last week I went and bought me a dollar lottery ticket for that billion dollar lottery that they had, right? Mm-hmm. I, I went and bought me one lottery ticket. There's a billion dollars, $1.4 billion on the lottery. Like, hey, what's a dollar? If I can just win for $1.4 billion, and the truth of the matter is, that's contrary to the prayer I pray to God. God knows I ain't got no use for $1.4 billion. Right? But you, you see what I did. I, I, all of my life, in, in, in my ideals, I'm like, oh, I don't want to be so poor that I have to steal, but I don't want to be so rich that uh, that I have to forget God. But you know, God, if you want to drop $1.4 billion in my bank account, like, that would be pretty, that'd be okay with me. Right, right. So what am I doing? I'm looking, I'm looking for a fruitfulness. I'm looking for fruitfulness in what this world can give me, instead of looking in the fruitfulness of God's promises. Okay, make sense? Okay, all right. Um, good. We still got a few minutes. We can get through some more. So next thing we need to focus on. Look at verse 15. Um, Sarah denied, saying, "I did not laugh," and he said, "Oh yes, you did." All right? No, but you did laugh. Right? What does that tell us? It tells us that this person who is talking to Sarah knows what she is thinking. Right? How many of you were horrified when you were kids knowing that he knows that you were sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows when you've been good or bad, so be good enough for goodness sake. Right? Right? right. One of the first things that taught me that there was no such thing as Santa Claus was that I was some kind of heathen when I was 8 to 10 years old, and yet every year at Christmas all them toys I asked for were still under the tree. Right? It's pretty obvious that he don't know everything that I'm doing because if he knew the things that I was doing, them toys wouldn't have been under the tree. But God does know you. And not only that, he will hold you and I both accountable for every thought, word, and action that we've ever had. He knows what we think. He's omniscient. Let's look at a couple of passages there. Not only does he know what we think, but look in verses 16 to 19. The men arose, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abram was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? Since Abram will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he had spoken about him. All right? And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and indeed their sin is seen great. I will go down now to see if, if they have done entirely according to their outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing with them. So this is what they said. They said, he said to Sarah, I know that you were laughing. What was she doing? She was laughing in what? Unbelief. All right? He knew that she was laughing in unbelief. And she, what did she say? Uh-uh. And what did he say? Yes, you were. Right? And then what does he say next? Should I keep from Abram what I'm about to do? 
Now, how does he know what he's about to do? Because he's God. And he's decreed all things. Not only does he know that he's fixing to go down and destroy Sodom and know every soul that's going to survive that and every soul that's going to die in that judgment, but he also knows all about Abraham, doesn't he? I made a promise to him. I've chosen him out of all the people in the world for him to be uh, the one who, uh, through him, the, the seed is going to come that's going to save the world. Right? Save... Uh, so, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm going to do because he's going to be a great and mighty nation. And through him, all the world is going to get blessed. These are all promises he had already made to Abraham. And what does it show us about God? It shows us that not only can he read the thoughts of an individual, but he can read the thoughts of an entire nation, of an entire world. He knows everything that's going to happen. Why? How can he know that? I sure would have liked to know what those lottery numbers were the other night. Somebody in Illinois got them, right? But I didn't know them. How can he do that? Because he is the God who decreed everything that's going to happen. He is God. He's the one that determines everything. We were just talking about this in Sunday school the other day. God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. Right? Isn't that good to know? He can take somebody busted and broken up with me and you and bring good out of it. But He knows all of this. And so I want to look at a couple of passages about God's omniscience. Right? Let's look at Luke. Well, first of all, look at go to John. I'm pulling this one out of the top of my head, so don't quote me on John 2. So we're only going to get through Genesis 18 today. We're not going to get through Genesis 19. We're only going to get one of those chapters done. But that'll be okay. John chapter 2. And right at the end of the chapter, there's something there that I want to see. uh, Or I want you to see. Uh, John chapter 2 and verse 23. Well, let's start at 19. Jesus answered him and said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it took us 46 years to build this temple and are you going to raise it up in three days? Now you remember when he gets crucified on the cross, one of the accusations is that he said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Remember that? So these people are listening. They're hearing what he's saying. They don't believe him, but they're hearing what he says. Um, So when he was raised from the dead, uh, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So is he telling them the truth? Yes, in the people's eyes, the unbeliever's eyes, is he telling the truth? No, he's lying. We got this big temple here. It took us 46 years to build it. How are you going to tear it down? Right? And now he was in Jerusalem. Where? Wait, when? At the Passover. There again, he's observing the commands of Moses that they're to go three times a year and go to Jerusalem. During the feast, many, many did what? Believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning for he himself knew what was in man. Now that's an amazing statement there because this is what it said. The people believed in him but Jesus didn't believe in them. Right? Right? 
So, do you believe in Jesus? You can say yes. Everybody in this room will say yes. Um, and I, I prayerfully hope that every one of you say yes because you truly do believe Him. You trust Him. You're born again, blood-bought child of God. There may be somebody in this room who says, I believe Him because they're ready to get out of here. They've been here six months and they got two more months and then they're ready to go home. And so they're just going to keep saying they believe till they get out. I don't know. I can't tell your heart. You can't tell my heart. Right? I've had men stand up in pulpits and profess me all kinds of things that I believe in and then they turn right around and they, they let me down. But our salvation is not dependent on me believing in Him, but Him believing in me. Is my faith true? Is it true faith? There's no faking it till you make it with Jesus. If you believe Him, it's because He gave you the faith to believe Him. If you believe Him, it's because of His grace. If you believe Him, it's because you have a regenerated heart. And He knows your heart. He knows you inside and out. And the amazing thing is, He knows you inside and out and He still loves you. Right? What's the old saying? If I knew some of the things, you, what you guys were running through your minds right now, I probably wouldn't stand up here and talk to you. Right? But if you knew some of the things running through my mind, you probably wouldn't stand and listen to me. We're human beings. We're flawed. But God knows us inside and out. So not only does He... He know Sarah and the fact that what she was thinking, what she was doing, that she was laughing. But he knows the heart of every man. He's omniscient. He's God. Next, not only is he omniscient in knowing us, but he's omniscient in knowing everything that happens. Turn with back. Oh, oh wait. Let me show you one more example. At Luke chapter 40. Um, Luke chapter 40. Now, there ain't a Luke chapter 40. Luke chapter 7, verse 40. I'm sorry, guys. Luke chapter 7, verse 40. Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied and said, Say it, teacher. Let me give you some context. That um, Verse 39 of chapter 7 says this. Now, the Pharisees who had invited and in saw this and said to him, If this man were a prophet... He would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. I remember this story when he, he gets invited to go to Simon the Pharisee's house to eat. They're all sitting around the table and this prostitute comes off the street and starts washing his feet with her hair. Simon is thinking in his mind, if this man really was a prophet, if he really knew what kind of filthy trash that was that was washing his feet, he would never let her touch him. And then Jesus is going to go into this uh, uh, metaphor, this this teaching, this parabolic teaching. Uh, and he says, Simon, I got something to say to you. And he says, Say it, teacher. He said, A money lender had two debtors, one owed him 500 and they're out of the 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them is going to love him more? And Simon answered, said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, you see this woman here? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. There we go. There's that washing feet again, right? And But she was wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time that I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. Now, I want you to listen. 
She was not forgiven because she because she loved much. She loved much because she was forgiven. It's very important. Her and Simon both had a debt that they owed God. In Simon's eyes, she was trash and she was filth. And in Simon's eyes, he'd say, oh, well, she's a lot worse sinner than me. She owes God a lot more than I do. But what did Jesus say? You can tell by her actions that she has been forgiven. Because those who have been forgiven much love much. Right? He says, uh, he says, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man that even forgives sins? Well, we know he's God. And he knew that in just a matter of days that he was going to hang on a tree and pour his blood out for that woman's sins. He knew that she was forgiven. He knew her. He knew that she was one of his. And he said to the woman, your faith to save you go in peace. All right, now remember, it's not her faith that saves her, but who her faith is in that saves her. It's very important. She has a saving faith. Her faith has saved her because that faith is a saving faith. It was a gift from God. I can have all the faith in the world that I can fly and go stand on top of a 10-story building. And I can have enough faith to step off believing that I can fly. And 1,000 out of 1,000 times, I'm going to fall and die. Why? Because gravity is a law of God. And my faith was not based on the reality of that law. So I died. My faith has to be in something that is true. Or it's no good. It's not good faith. There's nothing worse in the world than going to somebody who has cancer and telling them if you have enough faith, God will heal you. It may be God's will that they die. Does God heal people with cancer? You better believe it. Every day. Does God heal us from sickness? You better believe it. Every day. But my faith needs to be in God. And His will. And sometimes His will is for me to suffer. Very important. All right. So, Jesus knows the heart of men. Last of all, we'll finish with this and then we'll wind it down. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So, look at, turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 44. Um, the, in, in Isaiah chapter 40 through, say, like verse chapter 50, um, God basically has a, a word battle with all of the false idols in the world. He shows them how silly they are. And He shows the people who put their trust in them how silly that they are for putting their trust in idols. Right? What is the first commandment? No, that's the greatest commandment. What's the first commandment? The Lord your God is a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before Him. Why? Because there's no such thing as another God. Anything that is not God is is an idol. God is the creator, and anything that you put your faith in besides God, you're putting your faith in something in the creation. It might be your imagination, your created imagination. But in in this passage in Isaiah, God is laughing. He's mocking the people for putting their trust in idols. And He's showing them how stupid their idols are compared to Him. 
So in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, this is what he says. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long ago since announced it to you and declared to you, and you are my witness, is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. He says in verse 6, Thus says the Lord God, King of Israel, and Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Alright, does that sound familiar? What did he tell Moses his name was? I am that I am, right? And what did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. I am uh, the bread of life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, right? Before Abraham was, I am, and then the Jews picked up stones to kill him because they knew that he was referring to this person. All right? So anybody that tells you that, 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 that there's nowhere in the Bible that Jesus just says he's God, it's all over it. Right? When he told those Jews, he said, Before Abraham was, I am, he was referring to this very these very statements here. And when they picked up stone to stone, they were trying to kill him because they knew what he was claiming. Now the Jehovah Witnesses might not believe that he's claiming that, but those Jews that picked up rocks that night knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying who exactly who he was. But the point is, is that don't be afraid and tremble. Um, there is no God like me. Verse 7, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nations and let them declare to me the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long ago since announced to you, declared it to you, you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? So what did he say? Get one of your idols to tell me all the things that's happened in the past why they happen, and tell me the things that's going to happen in the future and why they're going to happen. They can't do it. Because I am God. I am the one that established my decree. I am the one that says what happens and what don't happen and why it happens and the, the reasons behind why it happens. And that's what he's saying here. He's making a statement saying, I know the past, I know the present, and I know the future. Why? Because I'm the one that decreed it all. I am God. You see, that's what he's saying. There. And so... We'll finish up with that. We've got two minutes. Remember, <clears throat> focusing on today's lesson, we see where God is merciful. He comes to Abram, Abraham and Sarah and reminds him that he is a God who is going to keep his promise. He promised them that they were going to have a baby, and they are going to have a baby. God always keeps his promise, and he's kind to them. Sarah is struggling with unbelief, isn't she? And yet God, that God does not alter His promise one bit because of her unbelief. She's going to have that baby. Right? And so we need to understand that. God is a merciful God who always keeps His promise. He knows you inside and out and He still loves you. Um, for next Friday I'll be back and we'll see Abraham, Abraham plea for Sodom. He's going to beg God's mercy on the people of Sodom. And we're going to also see God destroy Sodom. So next week we'll see where we'll see a little more focus on God's mercy, but we're going to also see that God is a just God, that He don't play around with sin. So let's close with a quick prayer. I want to thank y'all for tonight, okay? Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a God who keeps your promises. Thank you for giving us your word so that we can know those promises. And I pray that for every man and woman in this room, myself included, for anyone hearing these words, I pray that you will make these words real in our hearts and our minds and our thoughts, words, and actions, that you will help us to trust you 
and to help us to not be like Sarah and not be like us and not laugh at your promises, to, to believe you and to receive you and to trust you and to walk with you. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to save us. Um, and we just pray that you'll continue to grow us and conform us to his image. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.